0: Before we begin our study of God's Word, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're thankful for your Word. We're thankful that in your Word you have revealed to us your thinking, for you have told us that in your Word we have the mind of Christ. Your Word presents everlasting truth, that which is true without borders. It is true across time. It is true across nations. It does not matter what our ethnic background might be. It does not matter what our nationality might be. The only thing that matters is that we are all descendants of Adam, and therefore, under the condemnation of guilt, we have all sinned and fall short of your glory. Father, we pray that as we study your word today, that we might come to a greater understanding of all that you are and all that you have provided for us, and that as we Study this, that God the Holy Spirit would make clear to us how we need to apply this in our own lives, that this is not just some ancillary aspect of our life, but it is our life, that your word should be our life, it should be our thinking, it should be that which informs and directs every aspect of our thought life, of our actions, of our relationships. Everything should be built upon what your word teaches. And we pray that you'd guide and direct us now in your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We're in Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. The theme in Colossians is that Jesus Christ is sufficient. Now that word sufficient is an extremely important word. Sometimes it comes across in English as if it's just maybe barely enough. Uh, But that's not the idea of sufficiency. A sufficiency means that whatever is needed, it's there. It is always enough. It is always more than enough. Jesus Christ has provided everything. There's nothing that can be added to what he did for us on the cross. Now, that's particularly important both at the time that Paul wrote Colossians to this church in Colossae and to our time. Because we all fall under the same basic problem, and that is we think that there's something we can do to add a little to whatever God does for us. We can help. We, we like to somehow figure out a way in which we can add something. We can do something to help God out that somehow we need to put our two cents worth in. And Scripture says that all that does is it dilutes and destroys whatever it is that God has done. We're to rely upon God exclusively. It's faith alone. That alone means that we're not adding anything to it. Why? The Hebrew Scriptures teach that all of our works of righteousness, our all our works of righteousness, that is, the best that we do, not the worst that we do. I would say all of our unrighteousness, but all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. That means that there is nothing good, even in the best that we have, as far as measuring up to God's standard of perfect tzedakah, perfect righteousness, so that, uh, so that we have to rely upon His provision for us And that provision of righteousness is sufficient, it is enough. That doesn't mean that we are justified in living our life in any way we want to or in rank sinfulness because God has provided everything for us. It means that because he has given everything for us, we don't have to be concerned with somehow trying to measure up to a standard that frankly is just impossible we don't have to worry about being under some sort of etern- uh, everlasting guilt trip uh, because we're not doing enough, not giving enough, not serving enough, not working enough. Not that works are not important for, as Paul says after he talks in Ephesians two eighty nine and 9, that our salvation is by grace through faith, he says, "...for we are created in his workmanship for good works." but they are the result, they are not the cause of our relationship with God. They are, our good works are based on our understanding of what God has already provided for us. So that as Paul has focused on uh, his introductory prayer of gratitude to the Colossians in the first uh, eight eight verses, especially verses 3 through 8 where he Expresses his gratitude to God for the tremendous spiritual growth that has taken place in this congregation, that they're increasing faith, uh, their love for all the brethren, uh, the fact that they're growing spiritually and bearing fruit, and that they are studying God's Word and it's being part of their life. He then comes back to his, the point of his prayer in verse 9. And in verse 9, we read, For this reason, also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you. And then he's going to give four purposes of his prayer. There's a, as I'll show you in a minute, there's a uh, structure. There are not four equivalent purposes. There's a primary purpose and three subordinate purposes. But this is the structure of this section. The other thing that's a little bit off-putting to students and scholars, perhaps in this section, is this is a, an extremely difficult Sentence structure. The Apostle Paul is well known for just almost rambling on, piling uh, clause upon clause, and and, uh, as he builds these enormously unwieldy sentences, which are then broken down, uh, usually in English translations into several uh, several sentences. So, if you look at this section from verse nine down through the end of verse 20 that's the actual sentence in the greek text it's an extremely long sentence some greek texts break that into two but they don't agree as to where the break occurs now all any in the original greek manuscripts there's no punctuation so any any punctuation that's supplied uh, is just supplied by the editors of that particular uh, Greek, uh, Greek text. So since they don't agree uh, at all in where they place the, uh, any breaks, I suggest that it's because it's all one lengthy, lengthy sentence. And so Paul slips from talking about what he is praying for to who Jesus Christ is and why it is so important to focus on him and his sufficiency. And that comes across uh, beginning uh, down in verse 14, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. New King James puts a period there uh, for English readers. There's no break there. Uh, it just continues all the way down through the end of verse 20. So he prays, and we saw in verse 10, that he prays that you may walk worthy of the Lord, not to be saved for they're already saved, But because you're already saved, you are now members. We are all members of the royal family of God. And we're in a position where we are being prepared for something yet future. We will get introduced to that uh, concept when we get down uh, into verse 13, when we see our first reference of the kingdom of the Son. That's what we're being prepared for. We are in a position now where we are, as we are being saved and added to the body of Christ, added to the church, we're not in the kingdom, but we are being prepared as future uh, future aristocracy in the kingdom, those who will rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ. So we need to learn now to walk worthy of the Lord. And we walk worthy of the Lord by being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So his primary, the primary thing that he's asking for is in verse 9, to ask that we might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. I focused on these things the last two Sunday mornings. We're to be filled with the epinosis knowledge of his will and not just a, sort of an academic knowledge of the word, but a full or precise knowledge that is the basis for application. And then there are these subsequent uh, subsequent purpose clauses that explain the four basic purposes that he expresses in his prayer. The last part of this opening, he, we are to, uh, to be giving thanks to the Father who's qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us to the kingdom of the Son of his love in whom we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins. So as we looked at this, we saw that the primary purpose is being filled with the knowledge of his word, which is related to the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit. Same verb used in both places, that we are to be filled by means of the Holy Spirit. This is important because today as we look at the 11th verse, he says that we are to be strengthened with all might. And the question is, as related to the title, is how can I really do this? If you come to understand what is expected of us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, what is expected of us in terms of the standards for the Christian life, and you're really serious, you're not going to water down, you're not going to somehow rationalize some of these uh, commands, you have to recognize that the spiritual life is impossible. The Christian life is impossible. It's designed that way. We can't do it on our own. We can only do it if we are doing it through the power of God, the Holy Spirit, and the power of God's Word. And so we have to learn how to walk, as Paul says in Galatians chapter 5.16, to walk by means of the Holy Spirit. That is the focal point of the empowerment of the spiritual life. Other than that, we're just trying to pull our... Uh, spiritual life up by our own bootstraps. We just can't, cannot do it. The key is understanding uh, this word, epinosis. Uh, the epi prefix, as I pointed out before, means a full knowledge. It's uh, sometimes talked about as a full knowledge, a detailed knowledge, a more precise knowledge. But as it's used in the New Testament as opposed to uh, Greek usage in common culture, secular usage, it has to do with a usable spiritual knowledge. It's not knowledge for knowledge's sake. It is knowledge for the purpose of walking worthy with the Lord uh, of the Lord to glorify him in everything that we uh that we do and everything that we say. So as Paul expresses this, I pointed out the last couple of weeks in verse 9, he prays first that we might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. This is done through three subordinate purposes that are expressed here, that we may walk worthy of the Lord. We do that by being fruitful, in every good work, that's application of what we learn as we study God's Word, what we learn in Bible class. Uh, The second purpose, that we may be filled with the knowledge of His will, that we be strengthened with all might. See, it is His Word. There are two things that give us power in the spiritual life, and they work in tandem. You can't have one without the other. One is the Word of God, which gives us the content, and one is the Spirit of God who gives us the enablement. But the Spirit of God doesn't work apart from His Word, and His Word doesn't function or operate apart from uh, God, the Holy Spirit. And then the third, uh, the fourth purpose, or the third subordinate purpose, is that we may be filled with the knowledge of His will, that we give thanks to the Father who has qualified us, to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. And this then begins the basis for his, Paul's uh, transition, where he just slips from this into talking about all that God has done for us in and through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then he begins to focus upon, uh, upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And this last part where he focuses on our gratitude to the Father for all that he has done is really fundamental because the more we learn to be grateful people, the less we put an emphasis on what who we are, on what we do, what we should have because of who we are, we become less self-absorbed. The more self-absorbed you are, the more arrogant we are for all of us. And the less self-absorbed we are, the more truly humble we are. Now, we have a hard time understanding humility, and we probably won't get to all of that this morning. The Old Testament teaches that Moses was the most humble man that ever lived. Now, Moses was a man who led between two and three million uh, rebellious Jews, Israelites, through the wilderness for a period of 40 years. His authority was consistently challenged. Uh, there were numerous problems that were, uh, had to be addressed because of their uh, failure to trust God, and this was extremely difficult. But it, so that meant that, the, that Moses, as a leader, had to be an extremely strong leader, a dynamic leader, and he wasn't someone who could be pushed around. So humility doesn't have anything to do with strength or uh, the power that one has or the the legitimate exercise of the authority that one has. It has to do with one's orientation to authority uh, over oneself, their orientation to divine authority. Uh, If you've ever studied leadership, one of the principles you've probably frequently heard is that in order to be a good leader, you have to be a good follower. And it may take you a while to understand that, but to be a good follower, you have to be able to submit to the authority of someone else, especially when they are telling you to do something that you think is wrong or that you don't uh, agree with. That is where humility comes in. Humility doesn't come in when somebody asks you to do something that you think is right and that you're willing to do. Humility comes in when somebody who's in a position of authority over you says, I want you to do this. And I want you to do it that way. Now, you can, in humility, address that and say, well, I want to challenge that. I want to question it. I want to see if there's another way we can do that. But then they say, no, there's no alternative. This is what I want you to do. And assuming that it's moral and legal, then uh, we have to submit our authority to that person. And that's where we learn humility. And you cannot be a good leader if you don't understand the basics of, of authority and humility uh, toward one's leaders and the ability to submit uh, to leadership. So gratitude is at the very core of success in anything in life. The more uh, grateful we are about wherever we are in life, the less self-absorbed we are and the less arrogant we are. And that then becomes a key to success. But we'll probably, as I said, we'll get there next time. This morning, our focus is more on verse 11. Verse 11, Paul expresses the purpose clause again, this time through the use of a participle. This is his uh, second subordinate purpose. The primary purpose, remember, is to be filled with... With the knowledge of his will, then there are three subordinate expressions of purpose. And the second of these is that you are strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long suffering with joy. Now, it's the structure of this that really helps us to understand this, just in terms of an overview. We see the primary expression of a purpose here through a purpose participle, that we're strengthened with all might. That might then is expressed in terms of its basis, which is the glorious power of God. And so we have the standard, which is God's omnipotence. We're strengthened according to a, a, an immeasurable amount of power, one that can never be tapped out and then this is for a goal which is expressed in that last clause for or toward the end the ultimate goal of all patience and long suffering with joy now there are there's uh, one one greek text the critical text that underlies a number of the more uh, recent English translations such as the New American Standard, the New International Version, New English Version, English Standard Bible, some of these others, the critical text tries to end the sentence there after long suffering and uh, put a period there and then take the phrase with joy and attach it to the next verse. I don't think that is particularly correct. And uh, it doesn't have to do with textual criticism or anything like that. This is an editorial decision, which often, often are influenced by certain theological presuppositions. And so I, I don't think that's where the break occurs. I think with joy applies to patience and long-suffering, and we'll see why uh, when we get there in just, uh, just a few minutes. So we're to be strengthened. Now, the word there that is translated strengthened is the Greek word dunamao. It's a present passive participle which tells us simply that it is, it's used in an adverbial sense and it's attached to a primary, uh, primary finite verb which goes back to uh, being filled with the knowledge of his word. So these participles attach themselves uh, in a sense of modifying a, a, uh, a finite verb. And that's what helps us to, to just define the structure of the writer's thought. We're to be strengthened with all might. This is a standard uh, idiom that's used in uh, Koine Greek so that the the might, that which we are strengthened with, is expressed through a cognate noun. Dunamao is the verb, dunamis is the noun. Every now and then you'll hear some uh, preacher get up and say dunamis has to do with dynamite. And so we're to have an explosive spiritual life. That's a little bit of a misuse of the language. It relates to just power. In some places it relates to ability to do anything, the capability to do anything, uh, the strength to accomplish a particular task. And so uh, this was a standard idiom that we were to be strengthened with strength, strengthened with uh, power, strengthened with ability. And the fact that this is a pass, that dunamao is a passive participle indicates that we do not contribute to the strengthening. We don't contribute anything. It is a dependence upon God. That's the force of a passive voice. And a passive voice, the subject, that's the individual believer, that's you and I, are, are receivers of of the action, which is to be strengthened. God does the strengthening. We simply receive the action from him. And that can only occur when we are in right relationship with him uh, through confession of sin, walking by the Holy Spirit. So we are strengthened with all might And the word dunamis is sometimes translated power, might, strength, force, ability, capability, a deed of power, resources, and various other synonyms. That power, that strength that we're strengthened with, that might that we're strengthened with, it comes from the source of God. But God is, you see, omnipotent. We think through the characteristics of God. The attributes of God we come to the three omnis, the three omni brothers, omnipotence, omnipresence, and omniscience and An omnipotence refers to the fact that God has uh, all power he is all powerful that doesn 't mean that God can uh, do anything that uh, that He might think of or that you, in your finite creaturely rebelliousness, think of, such as make a triangle, a square, or something idiotic like that violating logic or whatever it has to do with the fact that god has the ability to do whatever he wills to do that there is nothing outside of his the power to do whatever he wills to do and of course whatever he wills to do is going to be within the framework of his omniscience and his righteousness so he we are strengthened with all might according to a standard, and that standard is the power of his glory, literally. The power of his glory, that is omnipotence. This is related to the same thing Paul says in Philippians 4, that uh, God will supply all of our needs through his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. He has an unlimited bank account, so we can never tap out his bank account. We can never tap out his power He always has as much power after he provides us power as he had before because his power neither increases nor diminishes. It is unchanging. He is always able to supply us with whatever we need in whatever situation uh, that we face. So it is his power, not our power. Now, there are several things that the Scripture says about the power of God and how it is supplied to us. And so I want to just go to some of these cross-references to understand this. Two that are related to each other are found in the opening chapter of Romans and the opening chapter of First Corinthians. You might want to make a note of these in your Bible. In Romans one sixteen, in his introduction, Paul states, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it, that is, the gospel of Christ, is the power of God To salvation, that's its end game, its end goal, and that refers not to justification, that is making sure your destiny is heaven, but it is the end game which is the completion of our salvation in glorification in arrival in heaven. So it is the gospel, in that sense the gospel isn't just the narrow sense of the gospel, the good news of how to be justified, which is simply believing in Jesus as the one who uh, died for your sins and was buried and rose from the dead on the third day, but that the gospel in this fuller sense that Paul uses, it refers to the foundation of new life, which is faith alone in Christ, and the exploitation of that new life, through everything else that God provides us uh, with, from the moment of salvation, so it is the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation, phase three, the, the full glorification. we're finally absent from the body, face to face with the Lord. and it is for everyone who believes, not just for some, everyone has has the potential. Because everyone is blessed with every spiritual blessing at the instant of salvation. You don't have to wait for some second or third or fourth blessing. You don't have to walk an aisle or get some extra infusion of grace or anything else. Every believer gets the whole package instantly at the moment of salvation. And God gives us that power, but it is dependent upon our volition whether or not we are going to access it uh, in the way that Scripture says through being dependent upon the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 1.18 expresses the same thought in a slightly different way. There Paul says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, and there he emphasizes more the phase two process of sanctification with its ultimate culmination and glorification, for us who are being saved, it, what's the it referred to? The message of the cross. That is the power of So, the power of God relates to what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross for us. That is, he paid the penalty for sin in full so that we don't add anything to that. We simply accept that. And at the instant that we accept it, God the Father legally imputes or credits to us the perfect righteousness of Christ so that his standard is met. And then, because that has been accomplished, then he is free to supply us with every spiritual blessings. As I pointed out in the the second phrase, according to his glorious power, the word there in the Greek for power is kratos. Interesting, this is an antiquated Greek word, goes back to at least the 5th century B.C., if not before, but it is not used as much in the Koine period. Now, when it is used in the New Testament, it only references the power of God. It never refers to power or ability of a creature. It always refers to the unlimited, uh, the omnipotence of God. So he strengthens us, according to this unlimited standard that we can never, ever uh, tap out. Now, this comes to us in the church age through God, the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity. Romans 15:13, Paul says, Mount may the God of hope fill you. Once again, we have this same word, plerao, which means to fill up our soul. It's related to the fullness of content from God's word, and that which is the basis or the means of the filling is the Holy Spirit. It says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. Now, where's another place that you might think of where we have these two terms, joy and peace, found together? It's in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, when we talk about the, fill, the, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. See, this is part of the, the fruit, the character production that the Holy Spirit is involved in as we walk by means of the Spirit. So we, he prays that uh, God will fill us with all joy and peace by believing that's not phase one justification faith. This is ongoing faith in the, in terms of the Christian life that we may abound in hope. That indicates the increasing hope or confident expectation. And once again, this is by the power of God the Holy Spirit. It's not by your power plus the Holy Spirit. This is by the power of the Holy Spirit. Just a few verses later, Paul uses the same phrase related to the power of the Holy uh, the Spirit of God, where he references the work that God has done among the apostles in mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and roundabout to Illyricum, I, Paul says, I have fully uh, preached or proclaimed the gospel of Christ. So his ministry is energized or empowered by the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit that is the means that God strengthens us with all of His might. Parallel passage is found to, a parallel passage to Colossians one. is found in Ephesians 1, 19 and twenty, where in reference to uh, understanding the power of God. Uh, in verse uh, Ephesians 119 leading into this, Paul says that we might understand the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his mighty power and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power. Once again, it's according to the standard of God's omnipotence. And an example of that is in the resurrection in which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him. It's not just the resurrection. It's that entire process of resurrection, ascension, and session, seating Jesus at the right hand of God the Father in the heavenly places. And as I pointed out the other night in Acts, this is what we're going to see again and again in our study in in Acts and the gospel presentation of of the apostles is this focus on the power of God uh, doesn't just stop with the message of the cross itself but goes on to the actual seating of Christ at the right hand of the Father where we see that he is at a position of rest until it is time for him to come in his kingdom. Another passage that's one I've taught before a number of times and this is in Second Corinthians twelve nine, when Paul has been beset by, I believe, an, uh, a demon who is... Uh, a messenger of Satan, as it states in the text, and the word for messenger is angelos. Uh, so I believe that the messenger of Satan is a demon. And he describes it as a thorn in the flesh. This is a continuous irritant and problem that could even be debilitating. So there's this constant external pressure on the Apostle Paul to stop his ministry. And he prays to God, he says in that passage, three times that God would remove this, and see, God always answers our prayers. Sometimes he says yes, sometimes he says wait a while. But like in this passage, God says no. That's not because you asked or prayed wrongly. It is that uh, you didn't know what to pray for. Now God's telling you, uh, no, I'm not going to answer your prayer. Instead, I'm going to give you another solution. And that solution is that the thorn problem continues so that you can learn to trust me and walk by means of the spirit in the midst of that problem so that you learn that my grace is and we have that word again my grace is sufficient it is more than enough it will take care of whatever it is you're facing that doesn't mean you won't grow tired That doesn't mean at times you won't fight with weariness. That doesn't mean at times you won't feel like giving up. But it means that the provision so that you can continue and engage in terms of your spiritual life, it's always going to be there. So God's answer to Paul was, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I would rather, Paul says, once he understands this, I will boast. See, that's that expression of joy. See, that's why I say the with joy at the end of verse 11 is that we are to be strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and suffering with joy. See, his boasting is an expression of that joy that we have that, that even in the midst of our weakness or infirmities, we see the power of Christ coming in to sustain us and to enable us. In 1 Thessalonians 1.15, we see the same thing expressed by Paul again. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, that is, only by a message, but also by means of power, there's our word dunamis again, and by means of the Holy Spirit. So we see the connection between power or ability and the Holy Spirit. And in much assurance, he goes on to say, now in Second Timothy 3.5, he recognizes that there is, there's going to be a problem that arises for, for many within the history of Christianity, that there will be those who are uh, not relying upon the Lord and they substitute something else so that it appears that they are, so they have a form of godliness, they have a manifestation, they have the trappings of the spiritual life but they don't really have it. They, they're, they're relying on the wrong base. They're relying on the wrong power. So Paul says there are those who will come that have a form of godliness. They will have the ritual. They will have the right language, so to speak. They might even have uh, talk the right theology, but they deny the power, which is God the Holy Spirit. And we see this today. I was looking at one commentary on this as I was studying the passage, and it was basically just saying all you need to do is obey the word. Never mentioned the Holy Spirit in relation to Colossians 1:11. Uh, Just said all you need to do is obey the word. Well, anybody can try to be moral, but that doesn't mean that it has spiritual value. That is done only when we rely upon God, the Holy Holy Spirit. So, the, what we learn as we try to apply the word is that it's extremely difficult. So some people bail out and they go to these other alternatives where they're essentially denying the power of the Holy Spirit because it's tough to learn how to walk by means of the Spirit. See, what we learn from the Scripture is that the spiritual life isn't just difficult or hard. It's impossible. If we're truly serious about living a spiritual life and we look at these various mandates that we have in Scripture about loving one another not just when we feel like it or when it's convenient or when uh, the other person is doing the things that uh, we like or we approve of or we uh, we find that makes us comfortable, but we're to love one another consistently and all the time. That's, that's impossible. We can't do that. Uh, we can't do that apart from God the Holy Spirit. That's why it is a fruit of the Spirit. We cannot have true lasting peace and stability in our lives in real joy in the midst of uncertainty and chaos if we're not relying upon the Holy Spirit. He's the one who produces that in our life. Uh, We can't have the kind of attitude that we're supposed to have towards our enemies whether they are our personal enemies you have people perhaps that you work with that have uh, that are jealous of you or have some kind of personal vendetta or just don't like the way you are may not like the fact that you're a Christian uh make life difficult for you cuz that's just the kind of person they are uh whatever it may be we've all run into people like that but we are to we are to love them that's a tough standard we can't just generate that out of our own ability uh, we have to have an attitude that is distinctly and uniquely provided for us uh by the Holy Spirit. We had one example of this, national example of this, uh, this last week, as the the uh uh SEAL team went in and took out uh, Osama bin Laden last week. You look across the landscape of the country and you saw a lot of people rejoicing uh in his death. And even one headline uh, from I think it was the, uh, uh, a British newspaper, I think it was the Daily Mail, said, Rot in Hell, and had a picture of Obama there. Now, there's a certain part of all of us who has a certain sympathy for that, but the question that I uh, want to raise here is, is that the attitude we should have as a believer? That's not. For example, in Ezekiel 18.23, God says, Do I have pleasure at all that the wicked should die? Are we to take pleasure in the death of Bin Laden? That's not the way God thinks. That's not the way Christ thought. Are we to have pleasure in the fact that by, the, uh, by our victory in a military operation we bring greater security perhaps to our country? Yes, we should. Should we uh, be glad and rejoice in the fact that we can uh, have greater vic- that we should have victory over our enemies, yes, we do, but at the same time, we don 't rejoice at the personal death of the wicked. that is a challenge for us as believers. We recognize that s- someone, no matter how evil they are, no matter how deserving they are, no matter how wicked they 've been, they are still, according to scripture, they are still a a person, a human being, created in the image and likeness of God, and that Jesus Christ died equally for them and their sins as for us. And God does not rejoice in the death of the wicked, but he uh, prefers that they should turn from their wicked ways and live. This is seen in another pa- uh, passage related to Timothy. 1 Timothy 2, 3 through 6, I put the whole context up there, that God our Savior, verse 4, desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 2 Timothy 2, 4 is the uh, flip side. That's the New Testament version of Ezekiel 18:23. For the Lord explains, there is one God one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. In terms of the righteousness of God, your sins are not any better than bin Laden's sins or Adolf Hitler's sins or Saddam Hussein's sins. If someone is the enemy of our nation, we are to attack them in warfare, but with a different mental attitude. It's not about personal vengeance and it's not a personal vendetta, and it's not based on personal hatred. It's based on warfare, the principles of just warfare, and it's based on providing security for our nation in the same way that if someone uh, attacks you in your home or out on the street, then you're not supposed to have a mental attitude of hatred or rejoice in their death, but you are, on the other hand, supposed to take their life if necessary in order to protect the life of yourself or your family but you have to do it in a way that truly expresses and is consistent with the unconditional love uh, of of the Scripture. Unconditional love of God provides for the execution of criminals, but he doesn't rejoice in their death. And so you can't fall into the trap of human viewpoint, which seeks to create a, a conflict or a contradiction between those two concepts. That hating your enemy... And loving your, loving your enemy demands the execution of a criminal. It is a loving act. The unbelieving mind cannot understand that because for most people, they can't get involved in an execution or kill somebody unless they do it from generating personal hatred, anger, and animosity. So the scriptures are very clear that there is a particular attitude that we should have. Jesus expressed this in Matthew chapter 5, verses 45, uh, 43 rather, to 46. He said, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So he's commenting on the Mosaic law, and he's juxtaposing divine viewpoint with the teaching of the Pharisees. And he says, but I say to you, in contrast to what the Pharisees say and how they interpret this, Jesus said, I say love your enemies Bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father. That is, in order that you demonstrate the, the way that the members of the royal family of God think and act. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For you, if you love those who love you, what reward have you? See, it's real easy to love people who love us. But to love an Osama bin Laden, to love an Adolf Hitler in the biblical sense of that term, which isn't the sentimental, pansy way the liberal wants to interpret it. If you love them the way the Bible says to love them, then that's different. But if you succumb to hating your enemy and being motivated by revenge and other sinful motivations, then you succumb to the destruction of your own spiritual life in the midst of the battle. So we rejoice because we had a military operation that was successful. We rejoice because hopefully it will accrue to the greater security of our nation and the uh, destruction of Al-Qaeda as a national enemy. But we don't take personal pleasure in the death of the wicked because they're created in the image and likeness of God and because Jesus Christ died equally for them as he did for us. See, the Christian life's not hard. It's impossible. You can only have that kind of attitude if you're walking by the Spirit. Second Corinthians one three, as I've mentioned already, it's that God's power has given us everything we need pertaining to life and godliness, and so we're strengthened with all might according to His power, but to the end that we are able to have patience and long suffering with joy. The word translated patience is the Greek word hoopamone, which means to hang in there. It's endurance in the midst of difficulty. Makrothymia, which is long-suffering, has to do with being patient as we wait upon the Lord to provide and sustain us. In James 1, 3 through 6, we read that we can rejoice in the midst of trials because we know that the testing of our faith produces hupomone, produces endurance. But let endurance have its maturing work. So we, we have to go through this. There's a process here. Endurance is important. We're strengthened with his might to the end of endurance because as we learn to endure and trust God in the midst of the difficulty, that's how we grow to maturity. Well, you say, well, I don't always know how to apply the word. Well, then we pray, not uh, as James one five says, we pray for knowledge of application. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him But let him ask in faith without doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the seas uh, driven and tossed by the wind. How do you avoid doubting? How do you avoid being tossed around when you're in the midst of a crisis and trying to handle it by the word of God? It's because you've gone through prior training. This was the purpose that God gave pastors to the church to equip them, verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying or the strengthening of the body of Christ, until what? until we come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Why? Go down to verse 14 there. That we should no longer be children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. So when we look at James, and James says, ask in faith without doubting, how do you get to that point? You get to that point because you've been trained by a pastor teacher in how to think, and you learn the knowledge of God's God's Word, which takes us right back to the primary purpose and focus of Paul's prayer, which is that we be filled with the knowledge of His will. We have to think in terms of responding and reacting to situations and circumstances, whether they're national, whether they're personal, whatever the, the, the circumstances may be, by saying, how does the Word of God say, I should think and react to this situation? with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things and be challenged by your word, to be reminded again that the life that you expect for us is not hard, it's impossible, but you have given us everything that we need for it, including the uh, power of God, the Holy Spirit, who is the one who strengthens us and enables us according to your omnipotence, uh, that we may be able to endure and persevere no matter what the circumstances may be, and have real joy even in the midst of difficult circumstances. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Uh, salvation comes because you have supplied it for us through Jesus Christ. So all that is necessary is to believe in him, trusting in him that he has done it all, And we add nothing to it. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with what we've studied today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.